Starting a new year is always an interesting thing because I think that there's something quite Christian about a new year. The gospel story is about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and our opportunity to start over. Every single day, we do things wrong. My father used to say we sin in word, thought, and deed every day, and that certainly describes my life. We move towards holiness and sanctification, but the truth is that in our very everyday living, we need that grace and we need that forgiveness. And somehow, once a year, having that opportunity to start over sort of symbolizes that, doesn't it? That's why people get so excited about New Year's resolutions and and ways of doing something new. So the text that we chose this morning is very intentional. And the ones that we're going to be doing for January and February are going to be very intentional. That doesn't mean I'm not always so intentional, but we're not going to preach through a book like I often will do going through a book in the Bible, but we're going to take some texts that I think are very relevant for us as Christians to start a new year to have the proper foundation for 2020. The passage that we're looking at is out of the book of Proverbs, chapter 29, verses 17 and 18. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. If you have your Bibles, please turn to them. It's also printed at the top of the page as the handouts that we put in the bulletin. But Solomon says, Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people are cast, that people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. First, a little bit of word about Solomon. Solomon was the last of the three great kings of Israel when they had the United Kingdom. It starts with Saul, it goes to David, and then the third of the kings is Solomon, and he's the one who was able to also build the first temple. So here's a man of incredible integrity and and great stature within Judaism. But as a young man, he has a dream And in his dream, he can have anything in the world. Think about that. God coming to you in a vision and you get anything that you want. Now, he could have prayed for power. He could have asked for wealth. He could have asked for advancement, for political victories. But instead, he asks for wisdom. Hear that? Wisdom. It's what we need. You and I need wisdom. How do we live our lives? How do we properly live our lives Not so that we're smarter than other people, because that really is not what wisdom is, and not even comparing ourselves to others, but how do we live in wisdom? So we're making the right choices. When confronted with things, we know what to do. Well, I remember one time I was preaching in the book of Proverbs, and a young woman came to me and said, I wish I'd known this earlier. And I said, what that, what's that? And she said, well, in the message you this morning, you mentioned that the book of Proverbs is Solomon's ancient world, just statements and, and wise sayings on how to make good decisions in life. I think of how many bad decisions I made and I didn't know where to turn. It would have been nice if somebody would have told me I could just keep reading through the Proverbs and they would have given me guidance. It's absolutely true. Totally, she heard the point. The book of Proverbs are these ancient wisdom 
that continue to be true for us today. It talks about debt. It talks about parenting. It talks about relationships. It talks about peace. One of my favorite ones that Regina used to quote to me when we were early married was about the words that we speak, and it was about that you are like a madman shooting deadly arrows if you don't watch what you say, which he used to say to me, honey, remember that proverb, you're kind of shooting some deadly arrows here. It's true. Like a madman shooting firebrands, the text says, or deadly arrows is one who deceives someone else and just says, oh, I was kidding. It's a wise way to live our life. What we say matters. The words that we use are important. Well, today, the proverb that we're looking at is this one that I just read about discipline and about prophetic vision and about the law. If we get this right, I believe, or if we start understanding this, we will have what's real 2020 vision. Yes, we're in the year 2020, but 2020 vision is what we all ascribe to, isn't it? With our eyesight. It's not perfect. I've learned that over the years, that when they correct my eyes with glasses, because if I take these glasses off, I can't tell who any of you are. I can kind of tell that's Beth Leary in the front row, but that's about it. But I put these back on, and what they try to get me to is 20-20 vision. It doesn't mean I see everything perfectly in the sanctuary, but it means that I can see at 20 feet what I should be able to see at 20 feet. One day, I woke up not long ago, and one of my eyes was fuzzy, and I got very concerned. I had my glasses on, and it was sort of all distorted. And I went back to the doctor, and he said, oh, no, something's changed. We can get you back to 20-20 vision. Well, what I'm suggesting is not 20-20 physical vision, but 20-20 spiritual vision. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. Do you hear the difference? 20-20 spiritual vision does not mean that you and I are going to walk out of here and live every day just an absolute perfect person. But it gives us God's perspective on how we should live. And that's why we have problems when we take New Year's resolutions. We all know what the problem is, don't we? When I do a New Year's resolution, what do I do with it? I break it. When I break it, what do I do? I feel bad. Then I start feeling guilty. Then I think, oh, I'm a crazy person just doing the same thing over and over again, and then pretty soon I'm done with it. People have gone through that year after year after year. They start January 1st, they make this absolute proclamation, I am not going to do this this year, and by noon they've broken the resolution, they don't know what to do. Vision is different. Vision is what we see and where we're headed. Hear the difference? A resolution says, I'm not going to ever get mad at Regina again, and at 2 o'clock in the afternoon I get mad at Regina. Vision says, I want to work on my relationship with Regina. I want to see that in the next year I grow in my relationship with my wife so that by the end of the year, if things go well, I have a closer and better relationship with my wife. Vision is what we need to be about. Where is God leading you? Where is God taking you in 2020? Where would you like your life to be at the end of this year? How would you like your relationships to be? How would you like your church involvement to be? How would you like your spiritual life to be? And don't just make it settling on what you come up with. Let's go back and see what the scriptures say. So this morning we're talking and starting to talk about having 20-20 spiritual vision. A vision in which we see where God's leading us. And the first part of it from our text this morning is really about having the right kind of structure in our life. I love in verse 17 where 
Solomon says, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. The New Living Translation puts it this way, and I think it makes it really easy to understand what Solomon is saying. He says, discipline your children and they will give you peace of mind and make your heart glad. Do you hear that, parents? Hear that, grandparents, aunts and uncle? Discipline your children, and they'll give you peace of mind, and they'll make your heart glad. It begins with discipline. When Todd was in high school, he was a runner, and Regina and I used to love to watch him run, and sometimes he would win races, sometimes he would be in the middle of the pack. But one thing about our son, he was a very disciplined runner. He took instruction incredibly well. He did absolutely everything that people asked him to do. I even remember one time where he was dealing with a really bad problem with his knee, and he just had an absolutely horrible run, and he was told that what he needed to do after every single race is he had to put his whole leg in a bucket of ice water. And he came home after having this very discouraging race, and I looked at Regina and I said, I wonder how he's going to respond to it, and he went into the kitchen, dumped the ice in the bucket, put the water in, stood there, put his headphones on, put his foot in the, or put his leg in the water for 15 minutes. Why did Regina and I enjoy watching him? Because he won? No. Because it was better than everybody else? No. We love to see the discipline. We love to see the structure that had been built into his life around the way in which he lived. Discipline, the Hebrew word is yashar. It means these things. It means instruct, correct, supervise, and train. It doesn't mean to get angry. Solomon's not saying to parents, get angry and yell and scream at your kids and they'll give you rest. It doesn't say put unrealistic expectations on your children and life will be okay. It says discipline, instruct, correct, supervise, help kids know how to live their lives. Amen, folks? Wouldn't that be what would make the biggest difference in our world, our society, in our homes if we could get back to what Solomon is telling us to do here? The Apostle Paul uses athletic examples about this in Philippians when he talks about running the good race and And he talks about life as if it's a fight or a boxing match and buffeting our bodies. But isn't this a novel idea? Correct, discipline, and supervise our children. How many times have we seen kids that are unsupervised? And we sit and we shake our head. But we better be careful because sometimes what we see in others isn't really what God wants us to say He wants us to see it in ourselves. I remember in my first church, I had a woman who used to get so upset because our fellowship hall had these wonderful poles that went from the top of the hall down all the way to the ground. And there were four of them around our fellowship hall. If you go look at our Duxbury building, they have that same setup in the fellowship hall where they have these these poles that are support beams right in the middle, these metal poles in the middle of the hall. Well, you know what kids like to do. They used to come and they'd twirl around around the the poles. And this one woman used to get so angry. Won't any parent ever watch her kid? Does no parent in this church care about their children? She complained to me all the time until one day Christine, an older and wiser woman, came to me and she said, you know, Pastor Stan, the woman who is complaining to you the most, her children were the worst offenders. This is about me. This isn't about others. This isn't about 
Solomon saying, go out and criticize every other family for not being disciplined. It's about ourselves looking at our own life. And whether it be with our children or with ourselves, it really still becomes the same idea. It's about having structure. Jeremiah put it this way in Jeremiah 10, 24. Correct me, Lord, but please be gentle. That's how we're asked to do our correction also in our discipline in our homes and in our families. Discipline is not yelling and being out of control. It's about creating a healthy structure where children can grow with an understanding of how to live our lives and what are proper moral choices and how should we live and what time should we go to bed and when should we get up in the morning and how can we complete our tasks. And yes, there needs to be correction along with it. We can't have discipline and just have anarchy. The two don't go together. There has to be a structure in which people are also held accountable. One of my favorite stories of discipline was a story that was told at the retirement of one of my favorite bishops, Bishop Bayshore. Bishop Bayshore is the first bishop I had when I moved out here to New England. And he was a beloved, wonderful man, very gentle and very kind. And at his retirement, one of the district superintendents told about how Bishop Bayshore was kind, but he always had high expectations. And he always believed that everybody could do well. Now, I know that that was even true for myself, because I was a young pastor serving a little church of about 25 people, and he called me up and wanted to meet with me in his office and give me some guidance and wisdom. I remember driving to Boston thinking, this is odd that a bishop would take time to sit down and talk to me, but that's just who he was. He was a guy who really cared about making sure that the church and the pastors had discipline and organization. And the story that was told at his retirement was from one of the district superintendents who had served under him, and he said there was a really interesting time when the, the Boston Celtics were playing Los Angeles in the NBA Finals. And he said it was an ordination service, and Bishop Bashore was out leading the ordination service, and he said all of us who were district superintendents were sitting in a back row behind him with headphones on and a little television that we'd hidden because we really wanted to watch the Celtics game. And he said all of a sudden somebody dropped the phone, and the earbud came out, and he could hear it, and he said Bishop Bashore turned and gave the look. He said he didn't yell at us, didn't say anything mean to us, but gave us a stern look. And he said, you know what? You never wanted to get the stern look from our beloved bishop. That's what I think Solomon's telling us. Folks have rules and structure that are understandable, that's able to be followed. Discipline your son, Solomon says, and he will give you rest. He'll give you the delight of your heart. Learn the value of structure and discipline and instruction and correction in a gentle manner. No, this is not a resolution. It's a goal. It's a goal. It's a vision. It's where we want to take our homes and our families and our church and our lives. The second one is about revelation. It's not just about having discipline and structure in our life, in our homes, in our church. It's about getting God's revelation. Verse 18, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. Again, I like the way the New Living Translation puts it. When people don't accept divine guidance, they run wild. When people think they can do just anything they want to do, guess what they do? Just anything they want to do. 
And then people make choices and decisions that don't make them happy. It doesn't make people satisfied and, and thinking, oh, wow, I've just like done all kinds of awful things in my life. Don't I feel good about it? Guilt and pain and sorrow and hurt and all kinds of things happen from it. We had the prayer for a young girl who was killed and a mom and a daughter. I'm not trying to say anything. I've, obviously, we care deeply about people with addictions. But going to a party and getting just completely drunk and using drugs and getting in a car, you know, that's casting off restraint, folks, and that's doing anything you want. And that's not what we're called to live in our life. Recovery, working with people in recovery, is about learning to have a new perspective coming into people's lives so people understand a better way of living. No, this is not about blaming. This is about vision. The word hazon, the Hebrew word for prophetic vision, is used 35 times in the Old Testament. It's always used as the words that the prophets declare. It says that the prophets declare, the prophets see a situation and there's a problem, and they look at the problem, whether it be with a family or with a society or with what the country's doing, and the prophets get God's perspective and share it with the people. So Jeremiah and Isaiah and Hosea, these, these wonderful men of God, give God's perspective on the situation. Oftentimes, prophets get their vision in the dreams. We understood that even in the Christmas story when we read about Joseph. And he thought of getting rid of Mary, this woman he was engaged to. But God's vision came into his life. He went to bed that night, and the angel spoke to him, said, don't divorce this woman. Listen to a different perspective. God's doing something amazing and great. And so Joseph takes her as his wife and names the baby Jesus. Now prophet, prophetic vision comes to us through God's word. And it's opening ourselves up to something new. It's believing that God cares about you and cares about your life and cares about this church and cares about our families. So he's got a perspective and we become open to that rather than all the other stuff that we listen to. Because we're going to leave here this morning and we're going to hear as many negative things as you can imagine about our family, about our society, and God wants us to have his view, his perspective, in realizing that he's breaking into our world, and he has something to say about how we live our lives. A number of years ago, 2004, Regina and I were driving down at the time, Route 44, right in front of a sign that said, Plymouth United Methodist Church. And at that moment, God spoke to Regina. She said, I just got this sense. She said, you should be the pastor of that church. I laughed. I said, yeah, go tell the bishop that. I said, that's not going to happen. She goes, why? She said, I know, I know a little bit about that. She said, you'd love that. I think they'd really like you there. I said, well, Regina, the world doesn't quite work that way, but thank you very much, honey. I said, they have a pastor who's only been there a couple of years. They're not going to change pastors that quickly. A few months later, I got a phone call. We'd like to talk to you about serving a new church. So I drive over to a little pizza place in Providence, and I remember sitting there thinking, what are they doing with my life? Took a deep breath, finished my pizza, drove over to Barrington, and the district superintendent at the time, Gary Shaw, said, Stan, the bishop and the cabinet in New England has discerned that God would like you to serve the Plymouth United Methodist Church. The next word out of my mouth was, yes. 
He said, oh, you can't do that. I said, what do you mean I can't do that? He said, oh, you have to prayerfully consider it for 24 hours. I said, I have to prayerfully consider that I want to go there? Yes, that sounds great. He goes, no. There's a, and he told me all the issues that the church had had and all the things that were issues that were here. And so I left and I called Regina and she said, so where do they want to send you? I said, to Plymouth. She goes, well, I hope you said yes. I said, I'm not allowed to. We have to wait 24 hours. We have to pray about it. So exactly 24 hours, I figured it to the minute, I called Gary on the phone and I said, well, the answer is still yes. My wife had had a vision. Do you hear me, folks? I took that seriously. Regina had already said, I think God wants us to do that. Now, there are 600 churches at the time. I guess you could call it a coincidence. I've never taken it that way. I've never believed anything other than that when God speaks to us, we need to be open to prophetic vision. God works in your life and mine. We need to be open to that revelation. He does it through talking to us through the scriptures. He does it through other people giving us something. He can do it through a dream. And it's always good and healthy and positive. It's not us saying, oh, I have a vision that I need to do something awful. That's not how God works. That's why the scriptures are there to guide us and correct us and make sure we understand how God is working. That's why when we work with people in recovery, we teach them the first three steps, which is the beginning of God's revelation in their life. I can't do it, God can, and I'm going to let him. I can't do it, God can, and I'm going to let him. It's about vision. It's about God breaking into our world and giving his supernatural revelation so we're not just living by the limitedness of our own thinking. And the final one, if we're going to have a spiritual vision for 2020... It begins with this structure and discipline. It's being open to God's revelation, but it's founded in the Scripture. It's not founded in a Superman comic book. It's not founded in the New York Times, MSNBC, Fox News, or CNN. The words that we need to open our lives up to is God's Word every time. Verse 18, Blessed is he who keeps the law. Blessed is the one who keeps the law. Blessed means happy. We'll actually be happy when we open ourselves up to the Scripture. When we struggle in our life, if we would set ourselves on a process of reading God's Word daily so that we know what God's perspective is. As I've talked to the youth group this morning, I do a little video that we share with them. I've challenged them to have as a vision, learn the Gospel of John. Read it, reread it, read it over so you'll learn that book, so you'll learn the story of Jesus. Blessed we're told, you'll be happy then when you learn the law. The law is the scripture. People ask all kinds of things. How can I be happy? So they try stuff. How's it working? Then they try something else. How's that working? Then they try something else. How's that working? And the Bible comes back and says, I'll give you happiness. If you want to have happiness in 2020, we'll tell you how to find happiness. Read the scripture and learn to apply it to your lives. You'll be happy. Amen? Read the scripture and apply it to your lives and you'll be happy. Amen? Amen. That's how we're asked to live our lives. The New York Times had an article this last week. Why is America so depressed? Why are we such a depressed nation? Why is it getting worse and worse and worse? And they're not talking about clinical depression. They're talking about depression. People just being miserable and unhappy. 
Well, he's certainly not following God's Word. I can't blame the Bible on that one because people aren't reading the Scriptures and turning around and saying, my life doesn't make sense and I don't have meaning. But we have everything in front of us. We have smartphones and, and televisions and computers and you name it. Everything is there. You can buy everything and have everything and stuff we couldn't even imagine. We can work from home and work from the car and text while we're driving and get arrested for doing it. But none of it makes us happy, does it? doesn't give us satisfaction. Happiness, happiness comes from listening to God and realizing you are a beloved child of God and Jesus died on the cross for you personally. He cares about you personally. That if you were the only one who had gone astray, he gave his life for you and you can have that forgiveness and you can be part of his family no matter what you've done in your life. And now when you're looking for guidance and direction, God will break through every single time. Pray and open yourself up to his word and live according to the discipline and the standards and the revelation that he provides for you and our lives will get better. Which is why I end and love the story of Louis Zamperini. Olympic athlete who could run a mile almost four minutes. I think he got it down to 4.02. During World War II, he ended up leaving his training so he could become a in for the United States and he was shot down in the Pacific and he was picked up by the Japanese and he was put in a, in a prison camp and he was severely beaten and abused. But his discipline as a runner had gotten him through that time but he left World War II an angry, bitter man. He was a desperate alcoholic and he was a person whose life was just an absolute disaster. And then one day, his wife said to him, why don't you come to me to this crusade that's going on in Los Angeles? And he goes, you think religion's going to help? I don't think so, honey. But he finally decided to go, and he showed up at a Billy Graham crusade in Los Angeles. And as Billy Graham explained that your life can have purpose, and you can learn to forgive, and Jesus forgave you, and you can even learn to forgive others, he said at that moment he gave his life to Christ. And he realized he needed to forgive all those people who had done so many awful things to him. And he did. He forgave them. And he came forward and he gave his life to Christ. And he lived from that point on an alcohol-free, happy Christian life. Made all the difference in the world. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about learning to live God's way. To have God's perspective on our life. To have God's vision for your life. What does it mean in your life to have more structure and discipline? What does it mean in your life to have God's revelation break in? And what would your life look like if in 2020 you committed yourself to God's Word, to truly learning, to make this a year that you have the vision to get to know God's Word better? We handed out 14 ways in which you connect with a faith group, and we certainly have others if you talk to Pastor David or myself. We'd like to get more home groups started. But I challenge us this year to take that proverb and to learn to apply it to our lives. As we close our service, uh, Lona and Beth are going to come forward if you'd like to pray with either of them. And I invite you, if there's anything you'd like to work on in this coming year, anything you'd like to have God do in your life, to please come forward for prayer and we will pray for you. And as we sing our last song and you come forward Anybody who would like to come forward for prayer, we'd like to remind you that we're in this together as Christians. We're in this together as Christians. 
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love and for your grace. We thank you for your goodness and for all the things that you want to do in our life. 2019 could have been a great year for us. There might have been a time when we have appointments. But help us this year not to make a resolution to put all that behind us and do different and then just fail, but to have your vision on where you want our life to be, how you want us to live, how you want us to go. And if there's something we need working on, we pray that we could commit it to you. We pray for your healing, for your comfort, and for your peace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.